It's moments where you're like, what, what would I do if I didn't have this? And it's, uh, it's overwhelming. And I think the what now doesn't stop. I don't think that stops. And I think we put so much pressure on ourselves. And for me, when, when, when that moment does come, when I am in like these, this overwhelm and I'm like, am I contributing to this world? Am I bringing value to my life? I have to kind of like put myself into perspective and actually um, go volunteer somewhere. Be with the masses because at the end of the day, this this isn't only for us. This life is a shared life and we're all in this together. Hello and welcome to the Now What podcast. I'm your host, Savannah. Today's guest is Amal Kassir, also known as Amal the Poet. At only 24 years old, she has performed in 10 countries in over 100 cities, from youth prisons to orphanages to refugee camps. Her work in the community involves humanitarian initiatives for Syria, speaking out and organizing against Islamophobia, and empowering the voice of the marginalized through writing and speaking. Today we talk about how she created her own program in university, how she developed resilience as a young Muslim woman in the United States, and why people of all ages and races are eager to hear what she has to say. I absolutely loved speaking with her today, and this might be one of my favorites. I hope you enjoy this episode. So I'm here with Amal Kassir. I first found her through her popular TEDx talk, The Muslim on the Plane, where she talks about the importance of names and labels. As a Muslim American, she has frequently felt the prejudices that come with generalizations. I strongly resonated with Amal's story because I myself come from a bicultural background. My mother is French-Canadian and my father is Chinese. And growing up, I've often felt lost in my cultural identities. I felt like I've had to identify as one or the other. I truly believe that Amal's untraditional story can shed light on the importance of truly believing yourself and getting others to listen to what you believe in. Her fiery spoken word poetry and storytelling activism is truly the result of her lived experience. So Amal, do you mind sharing your story starting from your childhood? What did you envision yourself doing as a career? Gosh, um, when I was a little girl, I wanted to be an artist when I grew up. I wanted to be a painter um, and a, a drawer. And I remember the day that I realized that I didn't have the gift for it. I was seven years old. I was living in Damascus. I was at my grandma's house. And I, I remember looking at this sketchbook that I had at all my, my little comic book drawings. And and I, I literally held a funeral for my sketchbook. And I remember that that was the day that I realized that I was not going to be an artist that it just wasn't meant for me. Pretty dramatic for a seven-year-old, but <laughs> um, I've always been into the art. I've always been into creativity, storytelling, writing, acting. You know, kindergarten was the first time I got the lead in a play. I was born and raised in Denver, Colorado, to an Arab father from Syria and a white mother from from Iowa. And so, you know, we had this like intense cultural fusion inside of the household that I didn't quite appreciate until I began to write. But gosh, I don't know how to even tell my life story, you know? <laughs> if I if I look back on all the years, I know that a passion for justice was always there. Always. Since since we were young, you know, my parents would, would give us, you know, a, a dollar to go give the homeless man and, and to smile at him, you know, and and they they taught us to see 
those who are often unseen from a very, very early age. You know, if bread dropped on the ground, they taught us to blow on it and to eat it. We had these these values, these very grounding values, literally, you know, from the earth that, that kind of kept us stable in this rickety world. The story definitely changes after 9-11. I was six years old at the time. And that was the first time that I was aware of what being a Muslim meant. Because, you know, we'd go into the grocery store and and someone would say something to my mom. And my mom, although, you know, five foot one and teeny tiny little lady, she was tough. And she would stand up back and she would she would confront people who would call her a terrorist or a raghead or a sand N-word, tell her to go back to her country. Um, so I grew up seeing this, you know, at such an early age. It's been instilled, this this fire from a very young age, but also the creative and artistic ways. So yeah. how was it growing up with those two different cultures? Because I, I've also been, as I mentioned, like growing yeah. up with the French Canadian, completely different to Chinese. So yeah, how was that growing up with a mom and dad so different? Did they support you, um, especially with like your public speaking? Have they always been very supportive? You know, it surprised me because when I, uh, I think I, I was about, you know, 15 when I really was getting into it, when I, I mean, I, I was traveling for poetry. I was on Denver's Minor Disturbance Youth Poetry Slam team. And that was, that was, that was a big deal for, for my whole family. It was the first time that I, as a young girl, was like going out there. And it was my mom who took more of an issue with it. You know, my mom from America, who was a lot more, you know, I guess, relaxed about these things. She was way more worried about it than my father was. My father was like, you go out there, you tell them this and this and this. And this guy would try to, like, you know, put his voice in my speeches. And and that was startling, you know, because really, I thought he was going to be the one who, you know, was like, no, no, you shouldn't be traveling by yourself. You need to stay home. But no, he pushed me. He encouraged me. My Arab father was my biggest supporter because at the end of the day, he's, he's the, the one who came to this country. He's the one who got, who got the brunt of the brown Muslim identity in the United States. He's the one whose knuckles got bloody from building this American dream. So to my surprise, and he was the one who saw the value in it more than me, more than my own mother. You know, mama was real worried. She was real worried because I'm a, I'm a very visibly Muslim woman. But overall, I mean, gosh, it, my TED talk actually was the first time that my whole family came to one of my events and actually saw what I do. Very that must have been an amazing feeling. Oh my god! I'm really proud of you. I was so I I never had them in my audience before. So for me, it it almost was like I was standing on on strong pillars, just knowing my brothers, my mom, my dad were there listening. And you know, I wasn't expecting the standing ovation in the end, but I remember my eyes were locked on my father afterwards. You know, and I I just making him proud after everything he's done, um, it, it really, really meant a lot. And yeah, you completely radiate on stage. So where did you, yeah, where did you get that confidence from? And <laughs> you did your first, I guess, public speaking like event. Did you expect to get that reaction or what were you expecting? That's an, it's an interesting question because honestly, who I am on stage, that personality, that's my social personality. That's, that's me. You know, it, you really don't get much of a difference, whether it's a, it's a group of four people in a circle or 3000 people in an audience. And I don't want to say it's, it's confidence necessarily because I, I think, hmm. You just feel like you're being genuinely yourself, right? Like you're not pretending. So maybe it's just coming, it just comes easy to you. I always say that sincerity 
is going to be more important than confidence when it comes to public speaking. And and the reason is, is if you are sincere, even if your hands are shaking and, and, and your knees are buckling, what you are saying is stronger than you, you know, and, and I don't, I don't go on stage just, just to talk about nothing. Mm-hmm. For me, having an impactful message, having depth to my story that is very 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 important to me honestly though the the ted talk was the first time i was ever really really nervous i i usually don't get nervous at all when i get up on stage because i know myself i know my poetry i know my story so well that you know nothing really really phases me but i remember for that particular event it wasn't confidence it wasn't an issue of confidence i i knew my my work i knew my poetry it was more so i was so afraid that somehow my message wouldn't be delivered the right way that somehow it might come off as like self-pity or oh look at the poor muslim girl you know i i didn't i didn't want that i i wanted so much certainty in, in, in the message that was being delivered. And, and it was, it was a lot of pressure and not because I knew it was going to go viral on, on Facebook. That video has 11 million views on YouTube. It has 4 million views. I was not planning on that. I was nervous for the 3000 predominantly white people that were standing before me, you know, mm-hmm. it's crazy. Cause I know usually I have like an hour to talk and then like a Q and a at the end. So, you know, there's, but when you have like a 15 minute set time to deliver a message as perfectly as you can, you don't have that much control over the audience. You can't impromptu it. You just got to go. That's yeah. a lot of practice. So yeah, it's not easy to have a public voice anywhere, especially I find in the United States. So when you're yeah. one, you're young, two, you're female, three, Muslim. So it makes <laughs> your success all the more remarkable. So why are young people, my age and people of all generations eager to hear what you have to say. I think right now we live in a culture all over the world where we sit down and we watch. I mean, Netflix is like, it's, it's, it's a joke. It's a meme. There, there's Instagram pages about it. We, the only place open on Christmas day is the movie theater. We, as, as a people, as a culture all over the world, we are used to watching things. And and when we sit there and we watch something, we are opening ourselves up to something, whether it's, you know, an extreme makeover home edition that touches your heart in a certain kind of way, whether it's, 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 it's a reality TV show that makes you feel better, but we're looking for something, something fulfilling. And I think what my message offers one, it's, it's, it's fresh, you know, there's, there's not a lot of people who look like me um, doing this stuff. There's more and more now compared to before. I mean, Muslim women are definitely taking over, but I think the ability to combine two worlds onto one stage and fit it inside one heart, I think that's why people are receptive to the message that I have. Because at the end of the day, yeah, you know, maybe I'm a Syrian Muslim girl, but a story of my family getting bombed in Syria, it doesn't matter what color you are, that's going to resonate with you. And the message of resilience is universal. And the message of survival and strength, those things are universal. We look to people who've endured some sort of hardship because their story proves that there is strength that we can all attain. And and it proves that we're not alone. I kid you not, Savannah, almost 
every single show that I have done in the United States on a college camp, almost 100% of these shows, a U.S. veteran will come up to me after the show and tell me that they resonated with my story. A U.S. veteran who might have gone and, you know, been stationed in Iraq or Afghanistan or, or one of these Arab countries where, where, you know, people that look like my father reside. And they mm-hmm. come to me and they say, your story resonated with us. We remember the war the same way you describe it. We're not even in the same war, you know, and yet we have this common ground. It's profound and it's humbling, really. Wow. Yeah. So what is, I know you have several messages, but what is kind of like the main message that you try to get across in your poetry and in your talks? I think when it comes down to it, my message tends to be, uh, I'll quote a brother Ali verse for you. And I I quote it in most of my shows. Um, He says, can you tell me what language do you laugh in? The human reaction is smiles and cries. What language are the tears when they're falling from your eyes? I think that my message comes down to as, as cliche as it sounds, it does come down to, to humanity. That, 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 that is the universal language. Humanity is the language that we all speak despite our dialect. And if a story about Syria can move some, you know, Midwestern kid in a small town in, in, in Iowa, I mean, there, there must be something there that unites us. I think it's so important to find a ground in which we can all agree on. And, and that's what I try to do. I play devil's advocate all the time because I, I see things on a spectrum. As a Muslim, and I, I'm walking into, you know, the deep heart of the South where these people have never seen a Muslim. All they know about Muslims is what's on Fox News. That's all they know about it. So how can I blame them that they think Muslims are scary, violent monsters? Can I blame them honestly if this is all they've been exposed to? No. So you take what they know and you, you know, you, you work through it until there's common ground there. And once you see common ground, you cannot unsee it. The choice then becomes when you walk out of that room, will you choose to see this person as your fellow human being or will you still other them? Yeah, people are given a choice after my shows and it's, it's really a message of open-heartedness, not necessarily open-mindedness. I think if our hearts are open, we'll get a lot further than only if our minds are open. And have you ever presented in front of the audience and you felt like you didn't get your message across or <sighs> have you de- ever dealt with kind of like failure maybe in your eyes? Oh, what a question. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh, there's one show in particular, actually, that my mind has come back to for the last year. And actually, it wasn't a non-Muslim audience. It was a Muslim audience. It was a, a little bit of a wealthier audience in in Southern California. And this was like a huge gala for this really reputable nonprofit organization. I'm really glad you're asking about this because I, I think I haven't even talked about it out loud yet. But this this gala, it was, you know, they got some big names. It was really an honor for me to have even been invited. But Something had happened earlier that day where a dear, dear, dear friend of my, of my family, they found out that, you know, he was, there, there was some drug addiction that was a lot more severe than we had expected. And it came to light that day, like an hour before I was supposed to get on stage in front of 300 pretty wealthy people for this gala. And I gave this talk that was the emotions from my reality that hour prior were definitely dragged into this event. And I I had to change. My message became basically look around you and see those who are unseen. You know, it was kind of like 
a plea for the underdogs. Look at the homeless. People are struggling. There is pain in this world. And I, I really highlighted the pain and the trauma and, and, and the suicide. And, and I, I highlighted all of these kind of dark things that this gala didn't really call for. And it, it was not received well. It, it honestly was almost like, why is someone letting this like emotional girl up on stage that definitely felt like a huge failure for me because of the steam of the event but I, I think the stories I told nonetheless were very important especially for that particular community because usually wealthy people in all my experience don't interact with other classes unless it's like let's do soup kitchen let's you know let's pass out kits to the homeless you know that's the only way to engage so it felt like a failure because I don't think that's what the organizers were looking for and yeah how do you deal with those different audiences do you feel that you have to change your message or you have to cater to what they want to hear you don't change the message you just wrap it up differently okay you know because yeah. So, cause you know, I've literally walked into an audience where there's like 300 people with like Donald Trump hats on their head. And I'm like, I, we are not going to do this the same way we would if we were in a group of like a predominantly black and brown students, you know, in a diff- in, in, on the West coast, there yeah. is a completely different strategy, a different welcoming. Cause in one case, you, you, we have to meet people where they're at and uh, you can really, really assess the vibe of the audience. I think something distinct about performers wherever you go is their success, no matter how good of a show that they, they, they have prepared for you, unless they're on the same page as the audience, there's no way that that show is going to be received. The message going to be received. So you've got to like feel them out, see what makes them laugh. I'll like crack a few jokes, you know, see what works. And then, uh, and then I'll still tell the same poetry, it's the same poems, the same stories. You, you learn a lot about the different people that way. And, and you think about who you're talking to. I think there's a, there's a word to describe it, like a psychographic, uh, approach like a lot of times you're speaking to mentalities too not just people because you could be in a super super liberal state but they might think all muslim women are like super duper oppressed and have no voices and this girl is just brainwashed walking up on stage mm-hmm. uh, uh, yeah and and so i'll typically try to like ask the organizers who exactly is coming is this a bunch of english students who are getting extra credit are these people who want to be there? Are these people who are forced to be there? Are these people who are curious? Are these people who who are there to challenge, you know, ask a hard question during the Q&A? And then from there, you know, you kind of vibe it out and see who you're talking to. And yeah, just going back to your education, I just want to talk about like what you studied in university because I read that you designed your own program. That's amazing. Thank you. Yeah. I was, if you could talk about that. Definitely. So I always knew that there was no, I was never going to fit in a box. I always knew that. And uh, I don't perform well if I'm not learning something valuable. If I don't, uh, it might be a flaw of mine, if you could say, but if I don't see the value in something, it's really, really hard for me to put forth my full effort. And uh, there were some classes up in that like psychology major that I was like, this is, this is not contributing to my Syrian side, my Muslim side, my social justice side. This is just information that I'm going to forget. And, um, I, I took one class in the human development family relations uh, department and it was in brand new department. I think this was like their first or second year and it was called family life education community programming. 
And oh my gosh, within two classes, I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to do programming. I want to be able to design something for groups of people and different communities and meet their needs, you know, instead of just study a bunch of stuff in a textbook, write an essay, and then have to do like nine more years of education for it to even prove fruitful. So that day after my second community programming class, I went to the liberal arts and sciences department and asked them, is there any way I can make my own degree? I want to do this, but I don't want to major in the whole department because, again, there were classes that weren't going to serve my my vision, my major life purpose, which was ultimately, ultimately to cater to the refugees, the underserved, the traumatized. I wanted to help the people in the shadows, the ones who the ones there's all these nonprofits that work for them. But, you know, we don't really know them. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to work with the most traumatized of the traumatized. And so. They're like, yeah, there's, it's called an individually structured major. There were like maybe three or four other kids in the, in the university that were doing it. One of them was like a math and a music major. One of them was like an anthropology, psychology major. You, you know, you fuse them together. You basically write up all of your, uh, all of your goals and your objectives, which I learned from that programming class. And then you get some professors who believe in you to sign off. So mine was like a fusion of technical writing, some grant writing in there, some sociology, some psychology. And it was really neat because every single class that I took served my purpose, every single one. And I use my degree every single day on like a personal level. And I'm like trying to figure out what the heck I'm doing with my life. But then, you know, when I need to go teach a class of 13, 14 refugees that are illiterate, I, I'm able to, to use that information that taught me how to write and how to engage with communities. So I love it. And I think everyone should do an individually structured major. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. So how did you gather an income while in university and then after? So I'm very, very blessed because my father came to America with the goal to give his kids a good life, you know, and, and my dad worked his butt off to make sure that we were going to go to school and we were going to do well in school. That was the contingency. He would help us cover our education. I'm very privileged in that regard. I, I, and I know that, that, you know, I didn't have to take out any loans or anything. And I worked at my dad's restaurant. I was doing poetry gigs here and there, but I was taking like 23 credits. You know, I was, I had full load. I was working on schoolwork every day. I was sitting on the board of a couple nonprofit organizations, um, organizing events, fundraising for the community. And my brothers didn't have the same opportunity that I did. But my dad thought, you know, if this poetry thing is going somewhere, the girl needs to get her education because if she does, if she doesn't, you know, I easily could have been a college dropout without the right support easily. But he supported it. He made sure that my uh, my education was my first priority. And then that gave me the opportunity to do these extracurriculars, like teach workshops at the refugee center. So alongside school, I was doing more so activism work. But that's only because my father, you know, was working to make sure my education was paid for so that I didn't have to do that. If I didn't have my father in that situation, I don't know what my story would have been like. Okay, awesome. Yeah. And did you ever feel, I guess, post-grad, like the title of my podcast, like, well, now, what did you ever feel like, oh, what do I do now? Or have you always just kind of known 
like you're on the right path. The reason why I found so much value in in your podcast is because uh, people will like look at what I do and be like, damn, like, wow, you, you seem really accomplished. You seem like you really have it together. But um, definitely, definitely not. The horror will strike me sometimes. The horror will definitely strike me sometimes that I, I don't really entirely... I, I've been performing poetry for eight years, you know, since I was 16 years old. I did not plan for this at all. I did not plan for any of my poems to go viral and for people to hear about it. And, and there's like this fear, you know, that like, what are you going to do when people stop inviting you? And it's, it is rough because we're in a, we're in a capitalist culture that teaches us that our value is our output. We don't have any value unless we have an output, unless we're, we're doing something, exhausting ourselves, working our nine to five. And it's daunting and it's overwhelming. And I'll have months at a time where it's like the off season, winter break or something. No one's inviting anybody to, to, to campus. And, you know, I like, I'm working on a book of poetry right now. And anyone who's a writer knows that like you're responsible for your own schedule. No one tells you what to do. So that, that can, you know, it can get swallowed up by your time in your life sometimes. And there's moments where you're like, what, what would I do if I didn't have this? And it's, uh, it's overwhelming. And I think the what now doesn't stop. I don't think that stops. And I think we put so much pressure on ourselves. And for me, when, when, when that moment does come, when I am in like this, this overwhelm and I'm like, am I contributing to this world? Am I bringing value to my life? I have to kind of like put myself into perspective and actually um, go volunteer somewhere. Be with the masses because at the end of the day, this this isn't only for us. This life is a shared life and we're all in this together. And we need to engage with the communities so that we remember that even if maybe we don't have that job yet or, you know, because I've, I've gotten rejected from a few jobs. I applied for a few jobs last year and, you know, I didn't get them. And it was it was super daunting, but I had to put it into perspective. You know, as long as as we're working towards the right thing, as long as we're trying to engage our communities or at least our families, at least our friends, at least someone, I think we can we can move towards some greater purpose. But we have to figure out what that purpose is. That could be really difficult. Hell yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, where do you see yourself like down the line, maybe in the next phase? Like where do you envision yourself like doing? I definitely, uh, I want, I want a book out. I want to be in libraries and I, I want, I want my words to be heard. I, I want to be a great literary contributor. Um, that's something as a, as a spoken word poet, not a lot of me is published, you know, so I'm, I'm trying to make sure that there's some sort of tangible mark, but I see myself hopefully a little more stable than now, but I also know that it's possible I'll never have that stability Maybe this freelance life is just is just where I belong. But I want to be able to serve as many young people as possible. I do a little bit of youth mentorship and I want to create a, a facility, a, a, a co-op or something where I can have the youth come to us before they reach 24 years old like I am now and don't know what the hell they're doing. Mentorship was what I was missing. Hands down. And so in the next five years, I want to make sure to give mentorship to as many young people as I can to be a literary contributor and maybe pop out a couple babies or something. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's really beautifully said. And I have just one other one last question. So I, I love your poem. This is for the ladies. So also happy International Women's Day to you. And, and I love that you talk in the poem, you talk about 
woman's beauty and dignity in a world that doesn't always honor authenticity. So do you have any advice for the females out there like in the workplace that feel lost and feel like they aren't being heard? Oh my gosh. You know, it's so interesting that you mentioned this because I'll tell you like the last year as a woman has been the biggest challenge of my life. Hands down. Just, I think uh, I just got married about 10 months ago. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) And uh, the interesting thing about being married is there's even when when they're not around, it feels like there's always this like second set of eyes on you, you know, and, and I think as women, we're so women are, are, are visible. Women are the most beautifully visible things in this world. We are. My gosh, I mean, all of the debates of cultures and clashing starts with women. You know, we hate this culture because of how they treat their women. Well, this culture treats their women this way and everyone's everyone's fighting. And I have one piece of advice that has really helped me. And that is be good to other women. Be good to other women. Compliment each other love each other, reach out to each other, support each other, you know, admire each other. And that that sisterhood bond, I swear to you, when, when all else is broken, when the men have failed us because they will, they will fail us, whether it's our fathers or our husbands or our brothers or our boyfriend, whatever, at least we, we will have each other. And there's, I hate saying it because it's so overused, but there is something divine about the sisterhood, about the matriarchy. You know, they say that, you know, when a child is, 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 is lost and a alone and cannot find his mother, what should he do? He should go to a woman with children because he will find safety there. She, she will be able to take care of him. And, and beyond having children, beyond any of that, beyond the way we look, having women come together, it's like we're the, we're the pack of lionesses that go hunting, you know what I mean? Like we've got our communities under control. We can scope out danger. We can build each other up because Lord knows if, you, if, 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 if it's only men around you, you know, and then you step into a room full of women, there's nothing worse than not knowing how to interact with those women in the right way. And I've been seeing a lot of that lately. A lot of, of women who grew up, you know, with the boys and, and don't know how to be friends with other women. And that's, you know, that's, we, we got to stick together. And that was Amal Kassir. You can find her at Amal the Poet on Instagram or check out her TED Talk, The Muslim on the Plane, in the link below. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review if you can.